Welcome to The Term, a podcast for the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me as usual is Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? It's going well, Natalie. It's a, once again, a slow week at the Supreme Court. So we're going to be doing something a little different this week. We're going to talk about an issue that has been a kind of a matter of public concern when it comes to the Supreme Court for many years, and that is its reputation as this very cloistered and secretive institution. I mean, I don't know about you, Nellie, but when you think of the Supreme Court, try, I mean, try as we might on this podcast to kind of peel the curtain back, it's not necessarily the most transparent in government, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I would agree that transparency is an issue we come back to time and time again, especially over the last few years. Um, look, shadow docket's a buzzword for a reason with the Supreme Court, um, especially the last two years. And then, you know, with the pandemic, it was such a big change just to have live audio streaming from the court. Um, you know, personally, I'm not sure why there's not video cameras in there, but that's just my own personal opinion. Um, I know I might be in the minority. Uh, so yes, transparency and the Supreme Court, um, you know, are words that we're continually hearing because they're kind of sometimes at odds with each other. Yeah, because it's, you know, ob obviously such a powerful and important institution in our everyday lives, which is why we spend so much time talking about the court on this show. Um, but that's why I'm excited for today's conversation with someone from an organization that has been calling for more transparency at the court for years now. And that is Gabe Roth. He's the executive director of the judicial watchdog group Fix the Court. And we have him now joining us on the show. Gabe, thanks for being here. How are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks so much for having me, guys. So I just use the phrase judicial watchdog because that's kind of the best description I can think of. But I mean, how do you kind of describe uh, the work of your organization? I think that's a, a really good way to describe it. I like to say that you know we're the only nonpartisan nonprofit in the country that does what we do, that advocates for transparency and accountability in the federal judiciary. Obviously, we're called fix the court, not fix the courts, but we we look at all courts in in, in Article Three. Uh, and yeah, I mean, when we were starting out that we found a lot of these groups were, were you know, trying to make the courts more accountable, but they had ulterior motives because they didn't like Clarence Thomas. So they didn't like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And so, you know, we try to do it as much as, I mean, you know, we, we could have an argument about, you know, whether conservatives and liberals are perfectly equal and, you know, we find the equilibrium somewhere in the middle. I don't think that's necessarily the case, but we try to be good faith, honest brokers and ensure that there's someone out there watching. And when, Members of the judiciary, whether the Supreme Court or lower courts, act out in an unethical way. We're watching, and we're going to let folks know about it. So I think it kind of almost goes without saying, right, that um, for an organization called Fix the Courts, one of the biggest factors is that the courts are famously slow to embrace change. Um, I think Chief Justice Roberts has likened the institution to a tortoise that slowly plods along. Oh, um, oh, oh, it's worse. Not only, <laughs> not only, not only is it a tortoise, but they've got tor tortoises and turtles adorned throughout. And I was actually on the Supreme Court historical website throughout the building. And I, I got, I wanted to get my daughter a gift uh, from the Supreme Court, but the building is closed because of COVID and I don't have a press pass, so I can't go in and I'm not a, a justice or a clerk. So go on the website and I was, and the only stuffed animal pretty much you can buy is of a turtle. So <laughs> I, I kind so my, of love that. So my, my, yeah, my <laughs> eight month old daughter, I mean, I'd show it to y'all. I mean, I'd bring it out and show it to y'all, uh, which doesn't really help because this is a audio podcast, though the four of us are on Zoom right now. Um, and yeah, it has a, a little, is it's, it, it's, is it is it a cute turtle or is it like a serious turtle? 
Oh, now, now I got to, now I got to bring it out. Now I know that. I know, okay, here we go. Um, I, who, who knows if this will make the final, the final cut? But I, I think it's kind of cute. I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, the the, uh, the the little string that went around it. I took off because it was a bit of a choking hazard or something like that for an eight month old. But but this is the turtle right here. Oh, cute. it's cute. So, very yes. cute. cute. Yeah. <laughs> Cuter than I was expecting. I mean, I had you know a lot of like a lot of things with the Supreme Court. They benefit from uh, from low expectations. So so this is the turtle. Um, My wife has named her Katanji. Okay. um, Because uh, that's just what the name she came. I don't know where she would have gotten up that name. There's no one named Katanji on the Supreme Court, but for some reason that's what my wife named her, and uh, we're gonna go with it until until something you know uh, unless something happens. So you actually kind of touched on what my question was going to be uh, mentioning that, you know, you couldn't go in because of the pandemic. How has the pandemic affected, um, you know, public access to the course proceedings beyond just being able to go in and buy, you know, stuffed turtles? Oh yeah. I could, I had to, I had to order the turtle online or tortoise. I don't know the difference between the two. Hope you don't get letters on that. And maybe there's no difference. Maybe there is, but uh, yeah. So members of the public can't go in, and so what the judici- what the Supreme Court has done is allowed live access to oral argument for the first time in its history. So this started uh, in 2020, the April arguments, the, the March arguments took place earlier in the month before some of the big uh, pandemic restrictions uh, set in. So then the April arguments were, which are the last arguments of a, of a term, right? Supreme Court hears arguments in October, November, December, January, February, March, April. So April was the last one of that term. And they just decided to postpone it to May. And when May rolled around, they said, actually, we're going to live stream these to the public. And that was a first. The Supreme Court since 2000 had allowed a end of day audio release for about two dozen cases. Um, but most of the audio of their arguments were released, you know, 99.8% of them are released or were released on Fridays. And uh, since 2020, they, they've been doing a live audio stream to the public that C-SPAN and a few other outlets have uh, a pool on that then is transmitted for free to the public. And that's been a real boon. I mean, I think you know, there was a poll last week that C-SPAN released, and I don't, I don't know how much you want to believe polls, but something like 45% of the respondents said that they had actually listened to part of a live Supreme Court argument, which was incredible. Like, if that question was asked two years ago, it would be something like 0.45% of the population. So access is great. And I think the for the people whose opinions have changed because of this, uh, you know, the C-SPAN also asked a question in their poll saying, okay, if your opinion changed about the Supreme Court because of this live audio, has it changed for the for the good or for the, for the bad, better or worse? And it, by a two-to-one margin, the live audio listener said, no, my, my opinion actually changed for the better. So I think that that's been a real boon to their to their reputation in terms of you know what they're what they're doing on a on a on a day-to-day basis i think maybe some of their decisions might sort of counteract that in, in, in the near term but but i think for just in terms of being able to watch the government do its work uh, live audio has been a real blessing and i hope it's something that's continued once uh all these pandemic era restrictions are fully lifted well i mean i think i speak for all scotus podcasters of whom there are you know, several. There are <laughs> when so I say many, that, Jimmy. I mean, it's it's a great it's a it's a great time. I mean, you got in. Pretty, it's a cottage you know, industry. So it is. yeah, you got into the ground floor, and it's it's only going up from here. But it's definitely a boon to to us to be able to kind of listen and kind of dissect the arguments as they happen. Um, but 
you know, it's not just members of the media, right? You mentioned some of the greater public assets, but also members of the Supreme Court bar. So you kind of reported on this letter from Supreme Court litigators. Can you tell us what that said? Yeah, so so 40 Supreme Court litigators who have collectively argued 464 cases before the Supreme Court, it's an incredible number, wrote a letter to Chief Justice Roberts to coincide with Sunshine Week, which is a you know government transparency week-long celebration that happens every year around Madison's birthday, which is mid-March. Um, and in this letter, they said, uh, you know, we, we understand that there's some people out there who want live video, some people want live streaming of opinion announcements, which, you know, the justices used to announce their opinions from the bench from time to time. We're specifically saying you have this policy for the last two years to live stream oral argument audio. It has worked. Please do not let it go away when uh, all the pandemic era restrictions are gone. Please make it permanent. Um, You know, we understand we've, we've, you know, and what's cool about this letter is it's not just, I mean, yeah, it's, People on, you know, names like um, Carter Phillips, who's argued 88 cases, Tom Goldstein, who's argued about 40, Andy Fry, who's argued about 60. But you also have folks like Amir Ali, who's argued, I think, only three cases, some of which were last in the last two terms in which there was live audio. Deepak Gupta, same with him. Uh, Erwin Chemerinsky, um, you know, uh, Allison Zeev, like people who have been arguing, you know, exa- you know, they may not have the numbers of as Carter, but they, they argued during the live audio process, some of them remote, some of them in the courtroom. And they said, look, we were a part of this experiment. We think it worked. There's no way to, there's no reason to, to not make it permanent. And, and Chief Justice Roberts, right, when I think it was before the pandemic, a few years before, when he was asked about it, he mentioned the possibility of like a loss of decorum. And I think some of the in their letter, they say there's been no you know loss of decorum, people sniping at each other, potentially, you know, the, yeah, the I mean, errant, uh, toilet flush notwithstanding, but <laughs> <laughs> alleged, alleged, of course, alleged toilet flush. Um, yeah, no. And that's that's been something I think it's been really interesting to see. And you, you can see it across other courts that have done live audio or even live video is that almost no circumstance I can think of I can honestly think of and I've watched I can't how many thousands of hours of of, of remote uh, audio and video of court proceedings at this point maybe one or two proceedings one actually I didn't even see but the Chief Justice of Ohio mentioned to me she said yeah once we started live streaming our video uh, our oral arguments there was one attorney who tried to grandstand and I put him in his place and it never happened again and <laughs> she was very proud of that and I was proud of her for saying that um, and I think the other one was like the cat lawyer, um, you know, so where, where the lawyer accidentally appeared as a cat on Zoom. But but seriously, like, I really can't, I haven't experienced any uh, disruptions, seen any disruptions. And look, everyone understands that, you know, Zoom or Skype or whatever isn't going to be perfect. And I think it's almost increased the decorum, knowing that everyone is sort of like, you know, maybe only 80 or 90% good with all these different technology aspects in our lives and know that random internet outages happen. So I think everybody's like a little bit more relaxed and able to sort of, you know, be a little bit more decorous because they know that, okay, you know, maybe your audio is going to cut out, maybe your video is going to cut out, maybe this is, you know, maybe your kid is going to come into the room and everyone just has to be a little bit more focused and, and a little bit more understanding throughout these remote proceedings. We wouldn't know anything about kids coming into the room. Um, <laughs> so, so Gabe, I just want to um, j- kind of divert the the conversation a little bit. Um, you know, in addition to kind of 
the transparency matters of, you know, live audio. I know Fix the Court has often called out justices um, for possible ethical lapses, whether it's an unseemly appearance at a fundraiser or a misrecusal um, over a potential stock conflict. So let's lay the groundwork first. What are the current ethical obligations of Supreme Court justices? So very little. I mean, I think when you look at an ethical obligation, you you really have to look at what any consequences would be for not fulfilling those ethical obligations. And right now, if you're a Supreme Court justice, the only recourse or reprimand is is the high bar of impeachment. And only one Supreme Court justice has ever been impeached about 200 years ago, and he was not uh, removed via that process. So, you know, the justices famously don't have a code of conduct that they follow. There's something called, you know, the code of conduct for U.S. judges, which all lower court judges follow. Uh, It doesn't apply to the Supreme Court. Um, They have they're supposed to fill out an annual financial disclosure report every year and report on their travel and reimbursements and their gifts. But, you know, I've caught several justices, you know, not filling them out completely honest. And there's no there's there's no real, real, real punishment um, other than, you know, frankly, shame, you know, besides impeachment, I think there is, you know, the public, some justices, not all justices, of course, but some justices, I think, do feel shame. And they say, OK, well, I've, I forgot to, to, to note this gift or I, I appeared at this fundraiser and, you know, maybe I shouldn't have if they're uh, but 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 overall or the you know, uh, January 6th uh, stop this stop yeah, the steal rally. yes if your wife attends a stop the steer rally generally you are someone who probably doesn't have any shame so you know just just to throw an example out there um, so, so there really aren't a lot of ethical guard guardrails I mean technically the justices are supposed to follow the federal recusal statute which says that a justice shall disqualify himself if their impartiality is reasonably questioned and a justice shall disqualify himself. If he has, you know, stock in a litigant, or if a family member worked on a case, or if they know material facts of the case, but that again, that that's something that you know we every year catch justices who participated in cases uh, in which they had a, you know, just recently uh, several justices didn't recuse from a case involving Penguin Random House, which is the publisher of pretty much, well, besides Thomas, the publisher of pretty much all of their books. I mean, okay, Alito and Roberts have been written books, but uh, the rest, pretty much all of them have, or sorry, Alito, Kagan, Roberts, and Kavanaugh have not written books, but the other justices who aren't Thomas, they use uh, Penguin Random House. So that's uh, Gorsuch Barrett, uh, Sotomayor, and Breyer. And they didn't recuse from a Penguin Random House case. Uh, there's this case called AFPF versus Bonto about uh, disclosure of, of, of donors um, and, and other disclosure and nonprofit law in, in California. And uh, AFPF is the uh, Americans for Prosperity Foundation. And the Americans for Prosperity spent a million dollars to try to get Amy, Just, uh, Amy Coney Barrett confirmed, and she didn't recuse. Um, and then Justice Kagan recently missed a recusal, but then she figured it out and recused. The, the bottom line is that, like, there's, there's just, you know, every justice, and there's this all old joke about the justices being you know, less of a court and more of a collection of nine law firm, nine independent law firms. And that just comes to, to, to bear when uh, on a lot of these ethics rules is that they're sort of moving at their own pace and walking to the beat of their own drum. And that's a problem when you want to have basic expectations of what the conduct of your top judicial officials in the country should be. Right. And, and, at the same time, um, the lower court judges, lower federal court, Article Three judges, who are bound by the code of conduct for U.S. judges, can sometimes even, you know, slip up, as we've seen with a recent report from the Wall Street Journal detailing all these cases in which judges are hearing 
cases in which they have a financial or or a family member have a financial interest. And you've kind of paid attention to this issue over the years. Tell, tell me about what lessons maybe there are for the Supreme Court um, when it comes to ownership of these individual securities like stocks uh, yeah. for potential conflicts of interest. Yeah, that that report that you reference is incredible, and they're, they're still they're, the reporters are still at it. They're they're up to I think 140 judges that heard a thousand cases. Now I know they I know they hit four four digits a uh, thousand cases in which a judge or a family member uh, owned shares of a company that was a, a party in a case. So, um, you know, and and several hundred of those cases have had to be reopened, have had to be re-adjudicated. The Supreme Court level, if that happened, I mean that 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 wouldn't happen because they would just say, oh well. You know, it doesn't matter, and uh, we're above the law. And if we own stock, who cares? You know, we, it didn't it didn't impact our decision, and they would just say that, or they wouldn't say anything, and they just move on because that's sort of the ethos of the court. Um, currently, three justices do own individual stocks. That's Justices Breyer, Roberts, and Alito, and they own collectively about stock in about thirty five to forty companies. Um, it's down from about eighty, which is what it was. Um, when we started up a few years ago, but there's several problems with this. One is we don't know in real time what stocks they own. So every year, you know, the Supreme Court gets thousands of petitions, but a good, you know, 50 of them, maybe 30 to 50 of them include companies whose shares are owned by the justices. So that's everything from, you know, small cases that's denied certain, there's, you know, kind of frivolous things where, uh, pro se includes like every company under the sun, but it also includes you know BP versus Baltimore, which is a b- major uh, climate change case, and, and and Alito had to recuse because of his stock ownership, which made no sense. He should have just sold whatever you know. He should have sold his Conoco Phillips shares, and he should have sold his Phillips sixty six shares. I mean, years ago, but definitely when that case came up, it would be all the more so because federal judges and justices get a, a tax break. They get a um, they can defer federal uh, capital gains taxes if they sell a stock in order to hear a case. So you know it, it's it's really in, in Alito. You know Alito shares a lot of them came from his father in law, um, who passed away and, and donated his shares to uh, to him and his wife Martha Ann. Uh, Breyer's shares a lot of them come from his wife, who's a member of the British aristocracy, and <laughs> and Robert's shares. Uh, you know he just was. You know, back when he was at Hogan and Hartson, he was he was you know invested in a bunch of blue chip stocks. Um, but all of that was a long time ago. These relationships are old. Alito's father in law has been dead for eight years, nine years, I think now. Like, let's go with the program and divest. And I think that you know there's some efforts now to get to actually ban stocks, stock ownership from by the by the judiciary. I know there's a big you know all this talk around banning congressional stock ownership, but. There is discussion of including the judiciary in in that bill, and we're you know we're sort of working on our response to that right now. But it, but it is it, it you know makes a lot of sense given that there are not only all these judges and justices who own stocks, but all these errors where they're hearing cases when they shouldn't be. Kind of the hot recusal question right now is not about stock ownership necessarily, but about. Uh, the current Supreme Court nominee, Katanji Brown-Jackson, not to be confused with your stuffed turtle. Uh, the, the court is obviously set to hear the, the big affirmative action case um, challenging Harvard's race-conscious admissions program next term. And some are calling on J- uh, Judge Jackson, if she becomes Justice Jackson, to recuse from the case because she has long 
held a position on Harvard's Board of Overseers. I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on that, Gabe, as someone who's paid attention to these recusal issues for years. Yeah, I I would, I think it's a close call. I think there are definitely folks on the left and on the right that's like, oh, it's ridiculous. You know, everyone who goes to, who's on the Supreme Court went to Harvard or has some connection to Harvard or, you know, the folks on the, on the people say on the left, on the right, they're like, oh, well, you know, of course she has to recuse. She, you know, worked on the admissions policy, which is probably not true. Like, I think there's somewhere in, in the middle is, is where I would come out. And I think that given the, fraught nature around this around this issue around this lawsuit given the fact that uh, you know judge jackson has been on the harvard board of overseers for it'll be six years by the time she's on scotus i mean her term is up in may so she wouldn't be on the board while she was on scotus hearing this case because this case is going to be argued in the fall but six years is a long time i mean i think that there is a perception of bias that if you're you know worked or worked with, worked on this this board at Harvard for a, for a, you know, a significant amount of time, you might be biased in favor of that party. You might be biased in favor of Harvard. Additionally, she actually recused from two Harvard-related lawsuits when she was a lower court judge. So, you know, I, I think that on the back, and I don't, you know, yes, there are different um, things that you need to think about recusing as a lower court judge versus recusing as a Supreme Court justice. If you were recused as a lower court judge, there's someone to replace you, not so as a justice. So it's possible that your quote unquote, you know, conflict sheet or list of conflicts of interest might change when you're elevated. But on the balance, I think that, you know, it is a close call, but for the good of the court, for the good of the integrity of the court, and for the good of the perception of the integrity of the court, and perception a lot of times is reality in these ethics areas, I think she should recuse and, uh, you know, I think she should just you know say it at her hearing and 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 move on. So, Judge Jackson's um, confirmation hearings are actually starting next week at the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, is this something you expect to see brought up uh, during those hearings, or is there anything particularly on your radar um, that you'll be listening for? Yeah, I, I absolutely expect Republicans to hammer her on on this recusal question and. You know, I think part of the reason that we're hearing so much about it is that the Republicans don't really have much of a coherent plan to try to stop her. So this is just sort of one thing that has been glommed onto, which is not to say that there should be a coherent plan to, quote unquote, stop a nominee. Right. You know, Scalia was confirmed 98 to nothing. Breyer was confirmed 87 to 9. Ginsburg was confirmed 96 to 3. Like, that's how it, you know, as long as the person is not a fire-breathing idiot, like, I think, the you know, the, the president should have wide latitude with which to appoint his or her justices. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, it's an unfortunate state of affairs that we have, like, okay, these 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 50 senators are looking for a way to stop her. Like, that's, that's kind of pathetic, but that's where, you know, it's what both parties do now. Um, so I think part of the yeah part of the reason that this issue is so front and center is because there's not much else to impugn quote unquote impugn her character on. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I want to hear more about look, I want to hear more about her judicial philosophy. I want to hear what she thinks about cameras in the court because that's always a question that's asked at these hearings. Uh, I hope that she's asked about life tenure on the court. That's not something that's been asked since the Sotomayor hearings in 2009. I hope she's asked some of these questions about ethics. She's not someone that has ever owned individual stocks while she's been on the court. And multiple federal judges have said to me, it's kind of ridiculous that some of their colleagues own federal uh, own individual stocks because that leads to all these potential 
recusal issues and ethical issues. So I'd be, I think she should be asked about, you know, what her general thoughts on ethics and, and, and stock ownership are. And, um, you know, one other thing I'll say about, about the Harvard issue is, is that I would like to see a strengthening of the recusal statute that currently exists for the, the lower court judges and the justices that says, look, if you are being paid to go somewhere, if you are, pay, if you are paid on a fade, put on a, a plane, free trip from someone, then over the next, I don't know, five years, 10 years, six years, three years, you got to recuse from those cases. So that to me is almost, and I didn't really bring this up because, you know, this legislation hasn't been introduced yet. And I don't know if it ever will be introduced, but I know, you know, there are people on the Hill working on something like this right now. That says, you know, look, you know, Harvard paid for, I think, you know, like 40 trips while you were a judge for you to fly from D.C. to Boston. So for six years after the end of the last trip, you got to recuse from the Harvard cases. I think that would just be, you know, I know that, you know, the plate, the ranch that Scalia died at, he got a free trip uh, to that ranch. And from one of the people who paid for that free trip was a litigant at the Supreme Court. Like, that's not great. So I think there should be sort of a cooling off period. So it's almost not just because of the the board issue, but it's just like, you know, Harvard's putting her up in a nice hotel 40 odd times. You know, and it's not just her. There are plenty of other justices that that, that fly around the country for free. I think there should be sort of a, you know, a cooling off period um, in the future. And, and it would be interesting to see what her views of judicial travel and reimbursements are related to ethics uh, are as well. Yeah, I suspect that'll have to come from Congress because I don't see the justices uh, clamping down on their summer recess plans on their own. No, 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 no. There's yeah, there's, you know, there's a ju- judicial travel accountability b- bill that that was bipartisan in the House and the Senate that hopefully will will be reintroduced. It was reintrodu- it was introduced in the last Congress. Hopefully, be reintroduced in this Congress. Twenty first Century Courts Act. There are definitely some bills being talked about that would, uh, you know, sort of. Uh, make it make the judiciary more accountable um from an ethical perspective it's just you know getting the political will to to focus on that is 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 not always easy with a million other distractions well gabe we're going to be watching the hearings as well so thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about all the work that uh, fix the court does appreciate it yeah of course and we'll just waving goodbye to the stuffed animal there (laughs) (laughs) for the listeners at home so, Jimmy, as you said, slow week. Uh, not much more news really to report. And I think that does it for us today. Um, great conversation, though, as always. And a big action-packed week next week when we'll have, obviously, oral arguments at the court as well as the hearings in the Senate Judiciary Committee for Judge Jackson's potential confirmation to the Supreme Court. So much to discuss in the future. Uh, but you're right. That does it for this week. So thank you, Natalie. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. We'd also like to thank our special guest, Gabe Roth. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 and the term. Thanks for listening. And oh, please write us a review.